I don't want a lot of medical training. But my friend, I think it's so valuable because medical training doesn't often include the leadership piece. And so I think coaching is so valuable because it is a completely different lens on their experience. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician and co-founder of Ivy Clinicians. Throughout this podcast, common themes have included physician leadership and preventing burnout. Our guest today is an expert in both. She's Nancy Scott, Leadership Development Program Director at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee. Nancy traces her journey to healthcare leadership all the way back to her softball days, where she learned about teamwork, but also how to deal with situations that don't quite go her way. She was a scholarship athlete in college until injuries prevented her from playing. Then after college, while looking for the right career in health, fitness, web design, and sales, she had another setback. I got in this major accident in 2006, and I broke my back, I shattered my arm, my clavicle. I was fired from one of those jobs while in my hospital bed. That unexpected piece of my journey is what opened the door for me getting my MBA. And I got my MBA from University of Central Arkansas, and for the first time ever, professionally, some of those dynamics that I saw on the field, you know, coaching, teams, healthy competition. Those dynamics were coming out in the workforce for the first time ever. And that spurred my interest into becoming an industrial and organizational psychologist. Nancy was hooked. She moved into teaching business strategy and management, and now she heads the leadership development program at the University of Tennessee. I take a three-phase approach, okay? In phase one, I call that our needs assessment phase. And that's where we use a battery of assessments, like a personality assessment, maybe a 360, a strengths assessment, a derailleur assessment. And so we, we I, I design a package of, of assessments that are going to help a physician leader learn more about themselves, perhaps identify some blind spots, some hidden strengths. And then, so with that needs assessment phase, once they finish that, we I, I actually am the person that gives them their feedback and talks about how do you unpack it, what do you look for. But really, the next big thing is at this phase, they're going to turn their, their feedback into development goals. And so that's really phase two. And with phase two, my role in that is connecting them to the best possible executive leadership coach. Right? And and then that is a really fun and probably one of the scariest parts of my job because I do a lot of research about physicians. So, you know, I'm checking out your Facebook, your wife's Facebook, you know, um, your LinkedIn, and uh, I'm reviewing your resume and, and some a lot of data. Um, and, and, and frankly, the answers that the physicians tell me, if I ask a physician coming to Pimpa, you know, what leadership challenges are you going to face this year? That student who tells me they're they're looking to grow uh, their own entrepreneurial venture, you know, they might get a different leadership coach than someone who says, well, you know, I want to work on growing my, how I react to conflict or growing my emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, 
I really listen and research on the physicians to connect them with the best coach that helps them in that phase two. At the end of phase two, the physician has set development goals that they're going to be committed to working. And then that's where phase three starts. And phase three is what I like to call our ongoing challenges phase, real-time insight, because that's where the physician gets time with this coach as an outside trusted confidant, someone to brainstorm ideas, bounce ideas off, get asked wonderful questions to challenge their perspective and and to help them figure out what's really, really important to them. But that last phase is the longest. And that's where they, um, as they're working their goals, they're tasked with figuring out what am I really learning from my process, from my progress, from what's going on in my world. Right. And that phase three, I hope it actually lasts forever. I hope that physician does phase three well after they graduate PIMBA. But that's how I ultimately structure development in those three big kind of buckets. The hardest part of that for me was the feedback part. <laughs> and that's probably true for, for others as well. Can you tell us about how to elicit feedback from others around you in a way that you're somewhat vulnerable and you're getting the truth without really putting yourself in a position to be heard? Yeah, that's a great question. To me, there's kind of an informal component and a formal component to that. Um, I think if we can create consistency in how we approach folks, perhaps through informally asking, you know, hey, what'd you think about when I did this? Could I, you know, how how might you have approached it? What could have I done differently? Mm. We might use a lot of informal mechanisms to gather feedback. And that helps create this relationship where people understand that feedback isn't threatening, right? And I've seen that when it comes down to the formal feedback, if we do a lot of the informal along the way, a lot of the formal feedback isn't a big surprise, like in someone's performance evaluation. One of the hate things I hate the most is if someone's caught off guard. They've never heard this before, and then it's right on the line where their paycheck, where their performance matters. Um, And so I really think the informal component is rather important. Um, But I also think, you know, that as we build a leadership style that's receptive to feedback and ask for it, I think that the formal channels, I think that we have to be very cognizant of how we react to get when we get that negative feedback, right? Mm -hmm both so that we can continue to get honest feedback. But I think the other piece of how we react is really about us, you know, because we understand our intentions, why we do things. Other people don't necessarily understand those. And that can really be a, that can lead to a big gap between, you know, what we thought we were doing and what other people thought we were doing. And then if they maybe have never had training, like some of the PIMBAs get on how do we give good feedback, some of their feedback can be very ugly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And very colored and biased. Um, And so I think about that emotional reaction piece, I would recommend to anyone, go slow through it, right? Really go slow as you're reading feedback, even feedback that you disagree with. Ask yourself some critical questions, you know, what might have this person seen to say that? Right? What might I not be doing the way as effective as I thought I was doing? Um, and so I would encourage us, everyone to go slow, try to unpack the feedback through asking yourself some critical questions, giving some honest answers. And Leon, at the end of that, right, and maybe I, the other thing I'd encourage is share some feedback with, and we, we were joking about 
Facebook stalking wives, but but with your business partners, with your with your friends, with your part, uh, 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 your spouses, you know, someone that really knows you, you can share that feedback. Mentors in the professional context, um, and if they if they tell you, nope, Leon, this isn't you. I don't see this. Then that's what I tell you. Take a black magic marker to that feedback. Move on, right? But if if you're getting it, you've thought through it, and trusted folks are telling you, you know, I do see some of this. That's when I tell you, all right, we this is feedback we might need to address. And if a physician leader wants to use one of the the formal mechanisms, what resources would you recommend they use? Oh, that's, you know, that one's really contingent on their context, just because each organization might have something different. You know, for a couple days ago, I was working on a project and the formal piece was there were leaders asking. They were actually wanting to get more um, personality feedback so that they could use it to have conversations with their team on how are we going to interact with one another. But their organization supported that. Um, and so one of the first key things I, I, I would I would lean towards asking questions, right? But what resources are available in my institution, right? Mm. What types of assessments might they use, right? Um, and then I would also tell anybody that's on, listening to your podcast, my friend, if, if they've got some questions, it will never hesitate. Reach out, shoot me an email. I'm happy to get you thinking about, you know, would that be the right tool for you to grow? Mm. There's so many tools out there. I think it ultimately gets down to we got to, you know, the right people are going to know the right tool and, and what it's built for, you know, because um, a personality assessment and a strengths assessment and a 360, they don't they don't give us the same thing. You know, they're used for something different. Got it. And then the next phase that you talked about is the coaching phase. And I think that coaching is really underutilized in medicine. A lot of high skill jobs out there, whether it's sports or music or, or the arts, there's an expectation of continual coaching and feedback from peers. That's the expectation during our training, but not the expectation once we, once we finish training. Can you talk a little bit about why coaching is so important at the postgraduate physician level? So in, in my view, you know, I, I have seen coaching, be, it, I have just seen it to be an incredible vehicle. And, and frankly, Lon, I would say at all levels, at, at all transitions, I've seen leaders make jump from physician into admin, coaching incredible tool, residency um, into practice. And so um, I, I would say coaching is such a tool because, gosh, I don't want to knock, I don't want to knock medical training. But my friend, I think it's so valuable because medical training doesn't often include the leadership piece, right? We're the physicians are learning technical skills. And so I think coaching is so valuable because it is a completely different lens on, mm -hmm. on their experience. Um, and then it's a lens where the coach doesn't necessarily have to come from the context, right? And so it's also valuable because they're not from your context. You get an outside perspective. You get a safe space. And we think of feedback. I mean, these coaches, I mean, they're professional coaches. That means they they know what coaching means. They're not really giving you answers. Many of them follow the inquiry-based models of coaching. And that, I mean, in any coach, I would encourage that, right? Because ultimately, that's the paradigm that the coach doesn't have the answer, that the physician has the answer. And my job as the coach is to help the physician. I need to come up with the right question to lead you to your answer. 
and to what you know in your head. Um, and so I think that that entire paradigm of how coaching works adds value to a physician because you all are, so, I mean, my experience, right? I am, physicians are some of the most competent people in the world, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that they like, I mean, it gives them agency over their choices, how they see themselves and where they want to go. It gives them agency and a partner. Kind and I think that medical education doesn't always give them that from the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So one thing that we usually do have is a boss. Right? So whether <laughs> we're, we, we have a medical director or a regional medical director or a CEO or president, just, whoever it is, there's almost always somebody that is our boss. What's, what's the difference between a, a coach and a boss? And, and should we kind of meld the two? Should we try to have our bosses be our coaches? Oh, what an awesome question. Um, so, and I could go either way, right? To me, that's also some context behind this answer um, because there are some wonderful internal coaches that wouldn't necessarily have to be a physician's boss. Um, they're someone's boss given, you know, there is, I am a little reluctant there just because the boss might, they're involved in your performance evaluation. Right. And sometimes in my experience, I've seen people not want to be as honest with their right. coach that is their direct boss. Um, but now I've also seen certain certain payers um, of boss and subordinates, they have enough trust in the in the relationship that, that neither are bothered by that, I guess, reward paycheck dynamic. Um, and so that is the one, the direct boss I would be careful with, but I would encourage and that, you know, a mentor who you might not report to, but it's in your um, discipline, you know, I think that could be a person that would be an excellent, you know, uh, potential coach. And I would encourage any, especially any young physician to, you know, reach out, try to grow their network and do it through a little bit through coaching. And then I'm sorry, Leon, I got so packed down into talking about uh, the boss piece. You know, I think the external piece, you know, we, we do, there's a trade-off, right? The external coach is not going to know your world. They're not going to know the ins and out of being an emergency physician. They are not going to know your healthcare system. You know, and so sometimes folks really do prefer a coach that's got a little more insight into those domains. But it, it is like, all right, do I'm am I going to have the expertise? Am I going to know the world? Am I going to, you know, or am I going to be the outside perspective and confidant? And there's absolute value in both. I think it's just thinking through what would the physician want out of the coaching relationship, right? What would be some of their goals? Yeah, one of the things that that we had. At, the, at one of the places I was a medical director was identifying experts in micro skills. So we had, we had a physician who wasn't necessarily the fastest, but he was amazing at patient satisfaction. So he would, when somebody needed or, or co wanted coaching about patient satisfaction, he was the one we turned to. I didn't need to do the coaching. He did the coaching because he was the best at it. Yes. Right. Leon, I love that model. I wish more systems were doing that. Um, because think about the power you've, while you're not giving him formal authority, you might not have to give him more money. You're at, you're potentially making his job intrinsically more motivating, right? Because the th other thing I've learned about physicians, some of the most competent people on the planet, and they've got the hearts as much as they have heads, right? And they want to give back. 
Um, and so my experience with physicians is they come from a great place. Um, and so to me, I see physicians all the time having the energy and the desire to coach and to grow those that are that are coming behind them. And so I love that that you said I would encourage do more of that, right? And and we think of the other reason I love that so much not isn't just the coaching piece um, and and leveraging your talent to grow your talent, um, but the other piece that I also um, just generally like about that system is you said the micro skills. And when we start looking at how do leaders develop not just their identity, which is where some of these assessments we're talking about, uh, that they build self-awareness about who they are, their strengths, their development opportunities. Well, then there's the skills piece. And I just love that you said the micro skills, um, because that's about deliberate practice. If we can identify a small skill that someone can get better at, and we can identify ways that they can consistently practice that, my friend, we're creating conditions for them to grow. So that's what you're doing. You double bang for your buck there, right? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. What yeah. what are some of the patterns that that you're seeing when when you're watching physicians get coached? What are the things that what are some of the blind spots that that physicians tend to have? Oh, all right. <laughs> I'm going to be really honest. The first one, um, I've my experience with physicians is they're sometimes their own harshest critic, right? They're mm. incredibly hard on themselves. And that shows out, I see a lot of struggle in the beginning of the coaching relationship. Sometimes they are so hard on themselves, they're not quite as interested in other people's feedback. Um, mm. And the coaches can help them make connections, help them understand, though. I mean, here's where it's, the coaching is ultimately valuable, right? The coach can help them understand what are some of the reasons why you might be harder on yourself than your peer feedback was or your supervisor feedback. But in the beginning, I see, you know, a fair portion of physicians who are so hard on themselves that the feedback is tough to take if it aligns or it doesn't align, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think... Um, you know, sometimes I, I do see the pattern where certain groups of stakeholders, their feed, and, and that's okay, right? But um, there are certain groups of stakeholders where I've seen physicians who are like, ah, their opinion doesn't uh, doesn't carry quite as much weight, right? Um, and, and it makes sense. I tell, I mean, honestly, in private sector, Leon, I say all the time, not all colleagues are created equal. You know, it's important that you're getting feedback from people whose opinion, you would change your behavior, right? Mm. And so sometimes I get physicians, they'll ask people, they don't really, they don't really care about their opinion. And so they don't really change their behavior because in the beginning they asked the wrong set of folks. And so sometimes I'm like, hey, whose opinion really matters? If what person, if they told you you need to change behavior X, you'd want to change it. That's the person whose feedback that that we should be getting. You know, and and when the physicians do that, I really do see their ears, their eye, everything begins to open to that feedback because apart they've asked the right people, they feel a little more comfortable. Their coach is helping them overcome their um, their harshest cricket, critic bias, and so I see. So I see ultimately when I put it together, I see a lot in the beginning. It starts a little slow, right? Because it's so new, and they're learning to take feedback that they trust from not just themselves but from other people. And they're figuring out what coaching means. And when they when they start to understand that, oh my gosh, it's light bulbs going off, and we're the whole building is lit um, because then the physicians get really excited about using their coach. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, IV Clinicians. Full disclosure here. 
I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. One of the things that that you you mentioned was having some folks that that the feedback was listened to a little bit more intently than others. That's tell me if I'm wrong, but my guess is that there's a there's probably a pattern there in the feedback to physicians as well that they aren't doing a good enough job listening to their lower hierarchy, but maybe maybe higher skill to like like residents, you know, residents know a lot less than the nurses around them. They're maybe the hierarchy doesn't align with that, but it is true that nurses know more than you. So how do you coach for for listening and what what advice do you have on that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and listening is absolutely a skill. So one of the key things that I use, and there are a lot of coaches who might do it differently, and frankly, Liam, let, let do it better. <laughs> um, but it, how I would start around coaching for listening, one of the key pieces we've got to do is help people understand what are your current patterns of listening, right? So I might ask a physician to keep a diary or a daily, however they would keep their daily notes, but track your behavior. And let's then let's do that for a week and a half. Let's do that for 10 days. Let's get on a call and then let's talk through what patterns are you seeing? And absolutely sometimes some physicians see things like, yes, I have noticed in 10 days, I completely discount what my nurses say to me. My first answer is no, right? And then, and and that is a common pattern I had. And you pegged it. You knew exactly what, when I said stakeholder group, you read right through it. So, uh, yes, and so, but then we get to think about, they, and once they, after they track and become aware of their pattern, we say, okay, well, some of the coaching questions can be, put yourself in the nurse's shoes, right? What might, what might their experience be working with you, right? What do you, what do you need their experience to be? What do you need this dynamic between the two of you to be for it to be healthy and to help you achieve your goals as a physician, the, the ER's goals um, as the unit, Right. And so sometimes uh, I think key coaching around both the listening, it's connected to patterns, it's connected to perspective taking. And then, of course, there's the skill base of listening. Right. There are actually levels. Oh, goodness. What is it? Karkoff. I think he's the researcher that researched levels of listening. Right. Um, and so like the worst level is me tooing people. And so maybe a physician, you know, and we do this all the time. That's oh, my favorite movie. Me too. I love sushi. Me too. Right. But we begin to look at these patterns and we do that every day. And we're turning the conversation about Nancy, not about the other person. Um, and so looking for patterns. And then once we see those patterns, we think about, okay, what's our cue? How do I know I'm me tooing Leon? Right. 
How's Nancy going to know? Is it she's got is she getting cues from Leon? Is she getting internal cues? But it's helping understand what are how do you know you're doing this? And when you catch yourself, what's my new behavior? If it's not me too and Leon, what's it going to be? And I would encourage every physician, and frankly, y'all outside of as humans, right? We want to get better at listening. If we know our old behavior was a little bit destructive, a new, better behavior might be asking a question from that other party, right? That helps us get more of their perspective, right? It helps us slow down, right? And hopefully we slow down some of the noise in our head, like what we're going to say next and things like that. But it enables us to slow down. It gives us another opportunity to reboot our listening and to make that connection. Because to me, listening is all about building a relationship, right? And, and leadership is relationships, right? I mean, leadership is about getting work done through people. If the people that you work with don't like and respect you, they're not going to want to do the work alongside you, let alone for you. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's great. Thanks. So you talked about ongoing challenges and making it a lifelong process. How, How do you instill that in people? Oh my gosh, you know, Leon, some folks, and this, you got my, my audience at Pimba, right? So many of the folks, I wouldn't have to say I have to instill that in just because they, they have made a choice to come back. They're an adult learner who is making a choice to grow, develop, and get more knowledge. But in all honesty, sometimes some of them, they're really there for the learning. Sometimes, and I, we'll step out of Pimba, I've seen lots of other programs where that adult learner is choosing to come back, maybe not for the knowledge, but because I need this set of letters behind my name to get a promotion, mm. right? And that might be the student who takes that mindset. I call it the checkbox mindset, right? And no offense to folks who who take that, right? It's about a goal achievement. That's a great. There's a great aspect to that. Um, but I, I would encourage, like, how can we balance that with the learning? Um, but the folks who are coming in just for, let me just get this done, that's where we've got to begin to think about how do we instill a better thirst, a deeper thirst for actual knowledge. And to answer that question, Leon, to me, if someone, if it's not their nature to have a high-level learn love of learning, to me, it's about making the learning applicable and relevant to their world, right? Because if we have edu- educators, we can, if we can make help you understand not make you if we can help you understand how learning like for example in Pimba lots of physicians super afraid I'm a faculty I'm afraid of of the accounting right I'm going oh my gosh that's really scary and intimidating for for the psychologist um not the accountant and so I see a lot of students who um they're really afraid up front they want to learn but they're afraid and then what do our amazing faculty do. What is Jim Reeves doing over there? He's making, he's creating accounting language that a physician can understand. And then he's giving examples that a physician can not only understand it, but say, hey, if I go practice this in my world, here's the skill I can develop. And so I think if someone's not a high nature, just love of learning, we need to make what they're learning applicable. They need to know what's in it for me. How can I use this on the other side of this? You know? But that's why the Pima faculty is so great, right? right. They can turn intimidating. <laughs> they can turn intimidating concepts. They can turn incredibly deep and detailed concepts into, frankly, something fun and applicable, right? And I, I like how you framed it as you know, it's a lot like how you framed listening, which is it's about the other person. And so, in a in this educational context, you know, if if the motivation is not intrinsic they're still mode that person is still motivated to achieve their own goals 
will help them achieve their goals and, and they'll be with you. Heck yeah, my friend. And that even you're getting me to think about kind of change, you know, we, at, a, at a change level, right? We've got to be able to tie the organizational, the, whatever the change is, down to that one person, what's in it for them. And so I think if we as generally as leaders, if we led with a little more empathy, it might make change, learning, leadership development, all of those things a little bit easier because we're putting ourselves in the other person's shoes and, um, and that can be of great value. One thing that that does need to change is the burnout crisis in emergency medicine. So I want to talk about that for for a few minutes. There are a lot of emergency physicians that go through uh, through your program, and and you've had a an opportunity to to listen to them and and learn from them over the years. What's what's your sense of what's leading some of these mid career physicians to feel burnt out? You know, I think the low-hanging fruit answer for me is, of course, COVID, right? I, I think mm. it's a piece of it. But if you do go back and start looking at burnout before COVID, I think there's some other antecedents. You know, um, to me, I think a, a part of it is, and I can, in emergency medicine, Leon, I, I don't even know when you sleep. How you, do you yeah. sleep standing up? <laughs> Not enough. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, I mean, honestly, an element of sleep deprivation, right? I mean, eventually that can lead to burnout. Why? We're not our physical best self. We're not getting sleep. We're not having time, no zero work-life balance or integration, whatever word you like, right? We don't have that work-life balance to allow for a physician, especially an emergency physician, to do self-care, right? And then everybody around us, if we're the average of the five people, right, that we know best and nobody's got time for self-care, right, it's kind of hard. We're not even getting the social support to help one another. We're all we're all just driving each other harder. I think also kind of going back to those self-critical tendencies that I've seen, that's definitely a pattern in emergency medicine docs. You know, all, all I think all specialties, but I have seen it in that one. Um, and so I think all of those are very prevalent along uh, amongst physicians that, that can lead to burnout. Then I think, my gosh, you add to the systemic factors, right? Um, limited opportunities for advancement, the, the pressures, the changes that are being done to physicians versus by physicians, um, the workloads. I So I think all of those systemic issues con- um contribute to burnout as well. Um, and so I, I think, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm scared, right? Because I wish I could sit and be like, oh my gosh, I feel like burnout's going away. But I, when you look at the data, I, I don't feel that way. You know, um, what was it? That, I think the Mayo Clinic measured burnout back in uh, a year ago today, and it was at like 63%. And that was almost double from what it was in 2020, which was up by 20% of what that was in 2017. And so, I mean, when we go back, we've got six years worth of data that just points to it's getting higher and higher in in emergency medicine and physicians in general. I think it's a critical question. what, um, What does the physician do? What does the system do? Right. Hmm. And and one of statistical set of differences is that female physicians uh, have higher burnout rates than than male physicians. Can you from your from from what you've learned in talking with a lot of physicians, what's your sense of what's behind that? To me, my hearing from our our female pimbas um, and maybe our healthcare leadership uh, 
female students, I think there's an element of family factors, right? The balance, the work-life issue. And I please know, gentlemen, I'm we you take care of your families. I'm not discounting that in any form or fashion. Um, but I just have a tendency to hear that that additional responsibility for family needs while balancing their workload. We take that out of it and we can even step out of healthcare. But we can even look at, you know, women in general, access to mentorship, access to promotions. Those opportunities are a lot more a lot more scarce. Um, and so I think between the what they're balancing and the limited recognition, I, I can see that fueling female physician burnout. Yeah, that that does make sense. And one one thing that that I have a hard time understanding in this context is we went through college and worked really hard and med school and worked really hard and, and residency and got, got beat up in residency and then got beat up in fellowship. But now we're getting burnt out as attendings. What in that, in the attending world do you think is not nourishing enough to, to these folks that are getting paid well and, and they don't have to work as hard as they used to, but they're still feeling burnt out. What, what do you, what do you think's missing? Oh, that is an awesome question. Um, I think an element, sometimes some of those career jumps when, when folks are doing something, when they've made a transition, it's a new skill set that can be um, a bit overwhelming for some. I don't think that contrib- that's the larger picture, though. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that that really points to the money isn't everything, Right. And I think that some things that doesn't come with the money include like responsibility, autonomy, getting feedback. I was really particularly interested when you and I first started even talking about in general getting together for this conversation because I am emergency medicine. It just reminds me of 911 operators where you meet someone on probably one of the worst days of their lives and you don't get really any closure on what happens with that individual. And so I think we've got folks who are at a different, yes, they're at a different, more middle career phase in life. They, they should be confident and competent in what they're doing, right? But they're adding some new skills to that. And then they're adding while they're getting the extrinsic motivators. I, I just don't think all of the intrinsic ones are there. And I think that that probably also contributes to burnout. I think you're exactly right that we 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 in emergency medicine have a gratitude deficit where we by the time the patient feels better and wants to give gratitude we're not there anymore they're they're they they give that gratitude to somebody else the the specialist that they follow up up with the uh, the primary care doctor somebody else is getting gratitude or should be at least getting gratitude and we often we only hear when things go wrong, and after a while, you're like, "Wow, I have spent years and years and years trying to master this craft so that I can help you, and all I hear back is that I'm not good enough." That that could be very dispiriting. I wholeheartedly agree. Right, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, that's one of the things from the outside, even being a patient in the emergency room. Right, I'm going, "Wow, you see yeah. these dynamics." Um, and then just adding the IO psychology background, I can see how paralyzing those dynamics are, you know. Um, and so I think feedback is needed. I, my question becomes to any system, challenge the system. How do, 
You know, how do we help an emergency medicine physician, the staff, how do we help them get the kind of feedback that they need, right? Because we do, if we think about principles of feedback, all we ever do is catch people doing wrong, right? That's actually terrible. All we're going to get is more wrong. We're going to get more demotivated folks. We need to catch people doing right and give that feedback around here's where, you know, here's how that behavior led to high level patient quality and what it did to this readmission rate, et cetera. You know your world way better than I do, so I won't keep throwing out acronyms. Um, but the idea that I'm trying to get at is that um, we have got to give feedback around the behaviors that we need more of and that contribute to the markers that really matter. And to, I think, the core physician, it goes back to patient care, quality, helping people, right? And I think we've got to get that kind of feedback back into our, into our frontline physicians so that they know that they're doing that. That's, that's great advice. So in the last few minutes, I do have a few concluding questions. So one is, what makes you optimistic about the future of healthcare in the United States? Leon, you, Right. You and every <laughs> you're too I, kind. Oh well, no, I'm I'm crazy and kind, but no, every physician like you, right? Here I am seeing amazing things, right? I am seeing physician leaders transform into business physician leaders, right? I am seeing these physicians begin to have a bug and an energy to train other physician leaders much earlier. Man, Leon, we had out of last year's PIMBA class, we had two of the physicians who went on to design uh, resident leadership training, right? Mm. And so those are the types of things. The, the future physician leaders of systems, the changes that are coming make me, make me excited because some of these leaders are going to be, they're going to be in the roles that give them the authority, the resources to make these kinds of changes to develop physicians earlier and sooner. That makes me excited as I'll get out. There's going to be a pin somewhere, Leon, making changes. <laughs> That's awesome. And speaking of, of Pemba, who's someone within your organization that you want to highlight who's doing really um, above and beyond work? Gosh, Leon, I probably couldn't just stop at one, So, but I'll, I'll do my best to narrow it down. But I would say, you know, uh, Jim Reeves, he... He is, he's, he's doing amazing work and how he puts together accounting content, you know, Leon, the class made a face. They, they put his, they made a, a tattoo out of Jim's face and wore it in RP4. <laughs> that man is an icon. If I'm the goat, he's an icon, right? Um, but uh, colleagues, Randy Bradley, Chuck Noon, right? I mean, they're doing incredible, they're not, they're doing things for Pimba, but they're taking it outside into industry, making large impacts. Um, my gosh, I, I mean, I, I will stop there just because otherwise, I mean, we'd have 10 other faculty for me to compliment. But all in all, I mean, I'm incredibly blessed to work with the colleagues that I do because every one of them, the thing I've seen is every one of them has a fire, right? A fire, the way you guys save people, the way you heal people, every one of my colleagues has a fire to support that, right? And to support the physician. And it is an incredible team, just an incredible team. Yeah, you got a strong team for sure. For sure. So what what book or movie would you would you recommend to our audience? All right, Liam, this connects to you bringing up deliberate practice earlier. So my book is The Leader Habit by Martin Lenek. 
Anybody who got interested in that point of the conversation, they read that book, they're going to realize that is going to help them make a next step to change their behavior tomorrow. And read that book, y'all, and reach out. Let me know if there's something I can help you with. But uh, the leader habit in regards to leadership development of, of micro behaviors, um, mul multipliers. Oh, what is her name? Liz. I'll have to remember her last name. Darn it. Uh, but Multipliers, that was another uh, another new cool book about how do we get more ideas out of folks in collaborative nature. So those would be my top two really great reads that connect to what we're talking about. Movies, I'm a little old school, 90s comedy girl. So uh, you got to see all the Billy Madisons and the Happy Gilmores and the Will Ferrell movies if you haven't seen those. <laughs> That's great. I I'm not sure what Will Ferrell's deliberate practice would would look like, but um, <laughs> but it is a nice change of pace from from the the focus that that deliberate practice requires. Yeah, I haven't seen some of the business movies. They uh, none of them really excite me too much. Yeah, got it. And if if folks are inspired by by what you do, what what you've said. How, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh my gosh, email me, y'all. Email me, nscott5 at utk.edu. I am so very happy. A friend of Leon's is a friend of mine. Um, and so I would love to talk you through if you've got a leadership challenge, you're interested in PIMBA, anything, right? Uh, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. nscott5 at utk.edu. That's great. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for this really inspiring conversation and and for uh, training the future leaders of America's healthcare systems. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.